Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's go there. With Shira and Ryan. Entertainment. Music. Pop culture. LGBT plus news. Let's go there. Start now. Hello, hello, and happy Monday. This is Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan, where we catch you up on the news of the day, pop culture, our lives. And so much more with some fun music in between right here on Channel Q. What up, everybody? Well, I'm excited to be back. Where did you go? Oh, you're right. I mean, the weekend. You yes. go you go home on the weekend? I don't live here. You know what I asked Ryan today? I asked if you went outside. Yeah, I don't understand that. <laughs> Why would that be the first thing she asked me? I feel like sometimes she is trying to ask me to get me to tell her about my weekend, but then she'll ask me random questions being like, did you go outside this weekend? Like, how was that for you? <laughs> I just hope you went outside. Of you course. I own a dog. Air. I own a dog. If I don't get outside, of course I'm going to get outside to make sure Coco is not using the bathroom inside of my well, house. Well, no, I know that. But did you really, like, not just a, you know, a walk? I knew you were going to go somewhere. I'm not going to say where. Like, somewhere that was uh, you People already somewhere. know my address, no, thanks you to you. So, I mean, so I was wondering, know like, if you, you know, or sometimes you go to the beach. I was just making sure you were taking care of yourself um yeah i mean i had a good productive weekend it was really nice and today i got oh wait that's wow not, this that's, sounds like hey that's not what i wanted to do yeah no continue with this <laughs> no well i got my second vaccine but i could i can't oh god oh. that's not it either anyway other music i don't know which one it is i I don't know what which one is. But anyway, I did get my second vaccine today, um, and I am in pain. Um, oh, yeah. On my How do you arm. feel? It's sore for sure. It is most definitely sore. You know, I gave you all an update the last time. It felt like I was being, I was fine. It, everything was all good. And I feel like it, I will still be fine. It's just I'm experiencing more soreness. Okay. And I feel like it's my just duty. Is that how you say it? My just duty? Oh, Sure. Feel like it's my duty to let you all know what's happening in the world, especially when it comes to us getting our shots. Yeah, I'm getting my second one on Friday. Yes, are you excited? Yeah, I just want to get it over with. It takes two full weeks though before it's like fully affected, like uh, affected in your body. That's what she told me today. Oh, she said it takes two weeks before you're fully vaccinated. Which I feel like they should remind you of that because I feel like people get their shots these days and they think like, "Ah, oh, it's over. Yeah, let's party." I most definitely feel that way. It, I know, I know. Uh, you know, you said that, but then I know that just like everyone else, I was at this outdoor thing this weekend, and literally, you would think like it, 
yeah, it was there was no pandemic. And Venice, Venice Beach was crazy. I was I kind of um, went in and then I left because it was too crazy for me. They're just like everyone. Are you really out. shocked by that? I guess uh, I am. I kind of miss the quiet vibes yeah. of the pandemic, but don't miss obviously the hurt and suffering. Let's be clear. <laughs> Coming up on the show. Okay. Coming up on the show, we are talking about everything that happened uh, during the closing arguments from the Derek Chauvin trial and inside the heavy financial burden of going on Drag Race. That conversation coming up at 3.30 p.m. Pacific, 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Excited to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But first, let's get into some What's Training this hour. All adults in the United States are now eligible for a coronavirus vaccine. Vanessa, producer Vanessa, we're looking at you. And uh, President Biden marked the milestone with a video urging Americans to get their shots. Folks, I have good news. Everybody is eligible as of today to get the vaccine. We have enough of it. You need to be protected, and you need in turn to protect your neighbors and your family. So please, get the vaccine. There it goes. Uh, And this is so sad. You know, we we can't even keep up with all the shootings happening right now. It's crazy. Over the weekend. I don't know if I want to, to be honest. I know you should, but I kind of don't want to. Well, now this just came out. Stephen Broderick, a former sheriff's deputy, was taken into custody by the authorities this morning. Broderick is suspected in the deaths of three people in a shooting in northwest Austin, Texas, that happened yesterday. A former sheriff's deputy. Sad. Uh, And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Um, my current favorite uh, internet beef is involving Demi Lovato. So get ready. It's time for the T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So she blasted a Los Angeles-based frozen yogurt shop called The Big Chill for carrying sugar-free varieties, saying it was triggering for her as a woman recovering from an eating disorder. She said, finding it extremely hard to order Froyo from at the Big Chill official when you have to walk past tons of sugar-free cookies, other diet foods, before you get to the counter. Um, Do better, please, is what she said. And she also added the hashtag, diet culture vultures. The Big Chill wasn't sweet on the critique and later defended itself on the shop's Instagram and tagged the star, writing, We carry items for diabetics, celiac disease, V, and of course, have many indulgent items as well. We are not diet vultures. We cater to all of our customers needed for the past 30, uh, 36 years. We are sorry you found this offensive. And of course, she was unwilling to let it go. Demi said her experience there was triggering and awful. She said you can carry things for other people while also caring uh, for another percentage of your customers who struggle daily just to even step foot in your store. I mean, did she just find out that diabetes was a real thing and people have to have sugar-free cookies and sugar-free sweets to survive? It's not just about her in this whole diet kind of culture that she's attacking, which I do think is important to talk about. The messaging, they maybe should have better messaging out there so it doesn't look like they're strictly a part of this diet culture, but they're not. People with diabetes like to eat too. Well, yeah, and it seems like 
And I haven't been here. It seems like they have a bit of everything for everyone. Well, they do. And I just, I feel like um, I was watching her before the show started because Demi Lovato actually took to Instagram uh, Live and basically told everyone why she was feeling so triggered. But she also said she could have handled it well, uh, handled it better. But she still doubled down on why she finds it important for her to fight for people who experience, you know, eating disorders. Of course. Which be I think is about, important. Be honest about your lived experience and what you're going through and make sure that you're using your platform to raise awareness. Totally. Yeah, but also don't just go out and attack a small business. Well, so here's the thing. <laughs> Where, and this is the, the balance between, uh, you know, um, calling out what needs to be called out and then taking accountability for your own feelings. Right. Exactly. And your journey that you're obviously going through where, you know, you're still triggered. There's a reason. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Sometimes I just find her to be a lot. And I love Demi. Check out her new documentary. And also check out all of these stories that I'm going to cover on today's show at WeAreChannelQ.com. LGT show on social to keep the conversation going. And I am done spilling until next hour. Okay, well, coming up on the show, what happened during closing arguments today in Derek Chauvin's murder trial? We've got our reporter from WCCO in Minneapolis joining us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. The defense delivered closing arguments in the trial of ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd today. The jury will then begin deliberations after the closing arguments from both the prosecution and defense. Back with us is Sloan Martin, WCCO radio reporter in Minneapolis, who's been joining us as she's been covering this. Thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks for the invite. An important day and quite a long one. I think uh, there was maybe some predictions that the jury would be getting the case even before lunch, but the defense went an estimated two hours and 40 minutes in its closing arguments today. Wait, he waited or he took that long? He took that long, yeah. He took that long. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) I didn't realize it was that long. Um, Can you talk a little about what his defense was and what was kind of some of his closing arguments? Well, it was interesting because obviously that was, uh, you know, quite a bit of time to be able to, uh, you know, wrap up this case. But it was focused on first telling jurors about what reasonable doubt is, that the burden of proof is on the state and saying that he did not think that the state was successful. He focused on were Chauvin's actions authorized use of force, because if they were, then no crime was committed in this case. He also highly disputed and wanted to shed doubt on the cause of death. So that is primarily what the defense focused on. And he really did not take, this is his attorney, Eric Nelson, who we've seen throughout the trial, really didn't take much of a narrative type of approach. In fact, it took him at least an hour to say explicitly that his uh, defendant had no intent to kill George Floyd. But he brought up situations like when Floyd took his last breath, when he reached for his mace because one of the bystanders was near him, which startled him. He said, you miss signs. So that was a a part where he's trying to shed doubt. But there was another moment, too, where for the very first time from the defense, you saw a more somber type of approach where he said, Nelson said, it's tragic. That's the first time we've heard that kind of sentiment in this trial. As he was explaining, there's no evidence that Chauvin applied unlawful force. So what's the feeling of where things will land at this case? I mean, you've been watching this firsthand, covering this. What do you think? 
you know, I spend a lot of time at protests. That's where I just happen to be assigned to. There's a lot of them happening in Minneapolis, of course, coinciding with the police shooting death of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, which they've all been tied together. This idea that I've heard from so many community members feeling like the system of policing is irreparably damaged in so many different ways, and it ties into the trial as well. And there are people who feel like there is the video. This feels like a home run. But so many people feel disenchanted with the system at large that I've heard from people who feel like they would not be surprised if there was an acquittal in this case. And that's really worrisome to people because they feel like they have the video in front of them. And in fact, the state really depended on that. I'm quoting from prosecutor Steve Slisher, who says, this is what you felt in your gut. This wasn't policing. This was murder. They've gone to the phrase as well that you use common sense. What you saw, you saw. So it was interesting to see the defense go to the video quite a bit in their arguments or in the closing arguments because the video is so strong for the prosecution that that was really where they laid a lot of this kind of final message to the jury on. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, I'm one of those people who are not really that hopeful on if, you know, I'm kind of bracing myself for impact just in case this doesn't go in the way that we think it's going to go. But speaking of the protest, how are, you know, police officers kind of uh, in the state or in the city kind of preparing for the reaction to whatever happens? Well, there's a lot of tension overall. I mean, there's some community members, for sure, who feel comfortable having thousands of National Guard members uh, throughout the city, even, because this is not just Brooklyn Center. This is also the trial and really preparing for the possibility of unrest in multiple parts of the city. And certainly there's people who feel safe with the heavier police presence. So they worry about their property, their business their neighborhood, things of that nature. But there certainly are other community members as well who feel like this is militarized police presence right here, where you're going to the grocery store and running your errands. And you should not have to see National Guard members with large rifles across their chests, with uh, militarized vehicles just out in your neighborhood as you're going to the grocery store on a weekend. So people are feeling kind of uneasy about that as well. But police and elected leaders, and we're a Democrat controlled state. Our governor is a Democrat. The Minneapolis mayor is a Democrat and other appointees, um, you know, run along those similar lines, even within public safety. But there still is this very much focus about not having a repeat of what happened in last May and June, which led to $700 million in damage, many of much of which, uh, you know, the city's the municipal government is on the hook for. So there is a focus on peaceful protests, but protesters who I've talked to, too, and I've witnessed in person as well, feel like there is too much force used against them. So there quite is there is a lot of tension. I mean, even from journalists, some of whom uh, were not were um, you know basically harassed by some law enforcement officials too, trying to leave the scene. There have wow. been some uh, uncomfortable moments of tension in this last week that we only expect to continue as we get closer to a verdict. Okay, well, that was Sloan Martin, WCCO radio reporter in Minneapolis. Thanks as always for joining us and for the work you're doing. Thank you. Now, coming up, actor Matthew McConaughey may be a viable candidate for Texas governor. What the polls say next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. I can't believe we are talking about this, but it is here. Actor Matthew McConaughey said that he might get into politics. And now it's official. He has a 12-point lead over Texas governor Greg Abbott. I know it's official that, like, it's a possibility that 
meaning people would vote for him. But yes, there was this hypothetical matchup for the governorship uh, that Dallas Morning News and University of Texas uh, at Tyler did this poll. Uh, 45% said that they would more likely vote for McConaughey than Abbott. 33% said they would vote for the incumbent governor. 22% of those polled said they'd vote for another candidate. Back with us is Richard Fowler, Fox News contributor. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. How are the both of you? Good. Good. This is a fun story compared to everything that's happening to talk about. This is not a fun story. Actually, I feel the other. I feel the like complete opposite. <laughs> what a nightmare. Richard, are you surprised that that many people would vote for Matthew McConaughey? Uh, I'm not. I think this is, listen, a polls always tighten. So this is a very, very early poll. This is based off of name ID. Matthew McConaughey has a very, very, very high name ID for obvious reasons. I, I, I dare I say, all right, all right, all right, all right. Oh, God. We're um, hanging up the phone. We're hanging up. <laughs> and, and because of that, that's one reason. The other reason is, is that, you know, the governor of Texas has been in the news for a lot of very nefarious reasons or bad reasons. Nefarious would be a very strong word. Whether it be, his, you know, the, the, the new, many new bills moving in Texas to sort of uh, anti-trans bills that are moving in Texas. Also, the fact that, you know, they had a severe winter storm in Texas and he, there's no attempt by the governor to update the power grids there. Um, also, many of the regressive voter laws that are moving in Texas. So there's a lot of reasons as to why Governor Abbott is unpopular with the current voters of Texas. And Matthew McConaughey, being an actor, is very popular in this moment. Yeah, but I just don't understand this idea of like, even if celebrity wants to get into politics, cool. But why do you, I guess, why do you think celebrities feel like they can automatically jump to what being a governor or being president? It feels like that shouldn't be your first job if you're getting into politics. This idea of celebrity just being an automatic governor or going straight to president. Uh, I agree with that. I mean, I do think that being the governor requires some level of experience, and we've learned. Um, from our former president that maybe, you know, running, managing a, a state or managing a country actually requires some, you know, smarts. And I'm not saying that Matthew McConaughey is not a smart individual, um, but I think you're right to point that out, Ryan, that, you know, maybe we should have folks who are in office that have some experience what it is to govern. Yeah, like you have to have a resume or certain uh, certifications to for certain jobs. It should be something similar as it relates possibly to the political world. Uh, do you think he'll end up running? Do you think he will see these stats and say, hey, this is my sign? You know, he's all about signs if well, you've he, read his book. He is a straight cis white man. <laughs> so, of course, he's going to probably run. Uh, we'll have to wait. You know, I don't know about this. We'll have to wait to see. Um, we'll have to wait to see. Remember, running is also about can you raise money and can you boo people to um, vote for you? And it's a lot of work. Yeah, and there's that. I mean, it is a lot of work, but I, I do wonder, do you think these polls, this poll that was taken, do you think it kind of shows the American people really didn't learn their lesson? Um, I would say that, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. What, I mean, I really honestly and truthfully, I think this poll just speaks to the fact this is a very early poll. I think they polled a group of voters and they asked them, hey, Matthew McConaughey is running versus Governor Abbott. I think people just know the name Matthew McConaughey, and that's probably why he's done so well in this poll. <laughs> Right. But still, that that means people aren't thinking about the bigger picture here, which is inherently yeah. a problem. <laughs> and, and I mean, let, let, let's be very clear. I mean, this is also and this is all this also comes at a time where Matthew McConaughey hasn't he hasn't announced. We don't know how he feels about the issues. He doesn't have a campaign website. He hasn't hand, hand, he hasn't handed out a campaign piece of literature. He hasn't given a campaign speech. This is sheerly based off of name identification. And yeah. w- would he be running 
Democrat? No one knows that. Maybe. We don't know this information, which is this is sheerly based off of name identification. Well, I uh, will say Axios said that he has uh, previously criticized both parties and has come across as more of a moderate who condemns the entire political system as the problem rather than any one party. Any thoughts? Well, there you have it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if Arnold Schwarzenegger can do it, Matthew McConaughey can. You really have, you still, it's 2021, you still have this much positive energy towards white men? I feel like Matthew McConaughey, I feel, isn't as bad of a white man. Because you read his book or your, his <laughs> audio book? book? Give me a break. Girl, Shira, don't put Shira in charge of no politics because all it takes is one nice white man to just win her over. With abs. Okay. Richard Fowler, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it. Good to be with you both. And Matthew also has a brain, by the way. Barely. You don't even know him. He said one, three good sentences in his book and automatically she, he's ready to be president. Let us know what you think on social media at LGT show. <laughs> Hit us up, slide into our DMs. Coming up on the show is the far right app parlor about to make a comeback. The announcement made today next. <laughs> Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Parlor. Remember that app? The far right were using it to promote and spread hate speech. Well, they were removed from everywhere, pretty much. Amazon, their hosting service. Apple removed them. Google. Well, Apple has now approved Parler's return to the iOS app store. Following improvements, the social media company made to what they're saying is better detect and moderate hate speech and incitement. I don't. You know, this is super frustrating because... If you're going to remove an app because you know that it is obviously problematic and it's going to be harmful, then leave it off of your app store. It seems like they gave the app an opportunity to like fix whatever or act like they fixed whatever because who knows? Parler's already known for being this app. Um, Parler's already known for... Wow, y'all are really hitting it. It's like a raven here. <laughs> oh my God, I'm having a really com- a real serious conversation right now. No, but Parler's already known for being this destination for hate speech. And so just because they, I guess, fix whatever, the Parler folks fix whatever just so they can get back on the app, they're a business at the end of the day. Hate speech is going to continue to be there because that's its home. So this idea that it's going to be completely fixed or wiped away is just like not realistic. And Apple just seems like they just gave in so quickly. Yeah. Parler said they proposed updates to its app and the app's content moderation practices. What does that mean? Right? Like, what does that actually mean? And it took a bit of time, right? It took... Uh, what, when did they get... Uh, it was January, obviously, that yeah, they got it was, thrown off. It was around January, so January 8th, 13th in that area. So we're like yeah. not even... It's like just three months. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. It's like you're literally putting a little kid in timeout and then being like, oh, no, you're fine. No, yeah, it's like, it's gone. You're gone. You're good. Everything's fine. And it's just like, now, guess what? If they put that back on the Apple Store, Trump now has a, a social media platform to go, go to at this point. And how do you know it's not going to turn into the cesspool that it was? Yeah, you can't be sure because in the end, the users create a platform. As much as a company might want to control or moderate, it's it's the community that creates it. You can only control that so much. And if that's yeah. where they're getting their user base, like they want to, unfortunately, you end up feeding into that or acquiescing to it a bit. And by the way, Trump definitely, I feel like, unless this is Trump's app, he's doing another thing. He wants it all. He doesn't want to share in the action. Yeah, I just um, I'm I'm 
interested in seeing what's going to happen because obviously Amazon hasn't let it back on yet. Um, I don't think Google Play has let it back on yet, but it has reiterated the same kind of thing that Apple's doing, that Parler is welcome back in the Play Store once it submits an app that compiles, um, complies with our policies. And so everyone's giving them that second chance. With, In my opinion, sometimes these apps, especially knowing who the people are involved with it and knowing what it is, should not deserve a second chance. I'm sorry. That's just not okay. I just wonder, are they going to be like a place for... I don't know, everyone. You think they're going to be like, this is a place we want everyone to feel safe. Not at all, because the same people, guess what? We are up on the news, and I think this is the really interesting part, right? We have our finger on the pulse of the news, but Sally and Joe in the middle of Midwest anywhere, they're just going to see that Parler's back, and they're going to do, oh, I remember this app. This is where my friends from down the street said they were on, and all these similar people are going to join this app again, and it's going to be exactly what it was when it first began came into like the public yeah it's hard to know if it will continue that momentum it's hard for any app to acquire you know users let alone keep that action so there you have it an update on parlor and apple coming up on the show what happened when a trans woman was refused a covid19 vaccine in oklahoma that's next on what's trending this hour let's go there with shira and ryan channel q Coming up this hour, our infectious diseases expert weighs in on why you shouldn't skip your second coronavirus vaccine. Which I didn't skip mine, but Congrats. I'm not going to lie to you. The way my arm is feeling, I kind of wish I did. <laughs> oh. Well, you got to supposedly, and you were told this, you have to take a bunch of things now, right? Yeah, you got to prep. So basically, uh, you got to drink a lot of Gatorade, vitamin B, vitamin C, all of these now things that I you know, have to take just to prepare my body to not feel all of the side effects in a very harsh way, which I wish I was not told all that because it just made me even more oh, nervous yeah. about the possibility of getting it. Because I know a lot of people who are Moderna girls who have not re- uh, received any side effects. And I have, re- like, I'm, I'm hoping I'm on that same type of wavelength, but I don't know. It well, feels a little intense. I guess time will tell. Yeah, when I die on air. <laughs> No. <laughs> oh my Can God. you imagine what would you do? What would be your plan of action? Um, nine one one. I'm going to be sitting here. I'm going to be sitting here, dead behind the board, at least for a good thirty minutes. I'd probably like, be like, "Are you there? Is this a joke? Is this part of a bit?" We're gonna, we're gonna literally try this out one day. We'll see. No, please don't. <laughs> Give me an anxiety attack. You're gonna traumatize me on air. How dare you? Oh God. Uh, so that's coming up in thirty minutes. Why you shouldn't miss the second coronavirus vaccine plus the huge financial toll of going on drag race. Woo! I mean, you can spend up to $4,000 to like $50,000 depending on where you fall in line on these drag race girls. And honestly, it's so much money and I'm happy someone finally wrote about this. Yeah, we have the deputy editor from Vice joining us. Yes, yes. Exciting. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Operation Safety has uh, been increased in many Minneapolis says the Derek Chauvin trial is coming to an end. And here's Minneapolis Police Chief Madaria Arredondo. Operation Safety Net is not about arresting people. We want peaceful assembly. We want peaceful protests. We know that we have a city that is mourning, that they're, that they're in grief. The last thing we want to do is turn this into an enforcement situation. I okay. genuinely doubt it. 
I I would I feel like every time a police chief says this this stuff and says we're going to keep it as peaceful as possible all you see are, you know, flash forward to tanks, to the National Guard with like all these guns and heavy, heavy, heavy police force just waiting there to start some stuff. I mean, seriously, that's every time we see it. It's not a joke. Yeah, it's famous last words. And other yeah. cities and states are actually preparing for this. And supposedly the jury is deliberating right now around the Derek Chauvin trial. So that should be coming out very soon. I don't know. Like, you know that how it works, right? They can take... An hour, or they can take 24 hours. Well, we need, just in case, we low-key might need to get Salone, who is an incredible reporter, joining us, who's live there. Uh, We might need to just hit her up and be like, hey, just in case this does happen, we need her kind of do a breaking news report about it. Yeah, I mean, my hope is they would take a bit more time. It's always worrisome. Either they... I don't know what why they need to take time. Well, that's true. Well, meaning if they if they didn't go for the way, oh yeah, if if they just didn't take a lot of time and decided that Derek Chauvin is innocent, then I would say. Oh no, that's the yeah, that's the awful case, right? Yeah, the worst case. Ah, okay. Well, uh, finally, a transgender woman was refused a COVID vaccine because she has a mismatched ID. That was according to Oklahoma State Department of Health. The Logan County Health Department turns the woman away, but she was able to be vaccinated, thankfully, the next day after the state health department stepped in. And that came after the LGBTQ advocacy group Freedom Arizona made them aware it had happened. So if you are turned away because of something like this, please get in touch with an LGBTQ advocacy group for help. That was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so Lizzo can't be the only person to have sent a cheeky little flirty drunken DM. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So my girl Lizzo admitted to the internet that she shot her shot at Chris Evans one lonely drunk night and something she (laughs) would have never expected happened. You can relate to this. Me and her maybe have similar tastes in men. I don't know. That is true. You do have a thing about like Captain America. Just about him being Captain America. <laughs> well, the thing that she probably would have never expected happened actually happened. He replied. Uh, Chris Evans responded by saying, no shame in a drunk DM. Um, he also said, God knows I've done worse on this app, LOL. And of course, he's referencing the penis photo he accidentally posted oh. to his Instagram back in September. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember that. You know, she shared all of this information in a TikTok video, which was hilarious. I, I mean, at least she can say Captain America hit her up and slid into her DMs at this point, right? I mean, who can say that? They follow each other, too. Yeah, not me. Yeah, it's not about you. It's I, about I have tweeted him before. <laughs> like I have tried and he, to get no, and we've actually had his brother on the show. <laughs> it's true. We've had Scott on, but we didn't mention anything. I thought actually, did we right, not, so I thought just, we did. I thought I. Why would I not taken that? Time no, we to didn't. You? That was actually very surprising. I cannot believe that. Yeah. I should have embarrassed her. Me too. I was very surprised. <laughs> get Scott back on the line. <laughs> so yeah, I have a friend. All right, we need to wrap this up. I have a friend that knows Chris, uh-huh. and that actually said that he was like, "You need to introduce me to a funny brunette Jewish girl." And I was like, hello! But you have a whole Well, this entire... is before I was in my relationship. However, mm. I heard he has a bit of a problem, so it wasn't going to line up for me. What type of problem? He's He has fun with um, some drugs. <laughs> some tough, <tough>, supposedly. <laughs> That's allegedly. But that was allegedly. <laughs> Once again, not... <laughs> 
not you spilling his wow, tea in the tea is, report. Listen, I'm all about psychedelics, yes. but there's a line. I told y'all there's the tea was good today. I told you the tea was good today. Um, check out more of this story at LGT Show, and we are ChannelQ.com. Of course, keep the conversation going. And um, I got more tea report coming up next hour. <sighs> all right. So coming up, why you shouldn't skip your second dose of the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, that's next with our infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. And 100 million people in the U.S. have taken one of their coronavirus vaccines. Some people are not showing up for the second shot. Back with us is Dr. Michael Sag, our favorite infectious disease expert. Thanks for being with us today. Great being back with you guys. So what is going on? Why are people missing their second vaccine when it's part of the whole deal? Well, I I don't know exactly why, but um, I think there's a couple reasons we can think of. First off, it's not a whole lot of people. Most people are going back to get their second shot, and that's good news. I can imagine that uh, one reason might be that somebody had some side effects with the first shot, and they figured, well, I don't want to go through that again. Or it's more likely that they um, just lost track of things or didn't feel like they really needed it. But regardless, I do want to emphasize it's important if you're getting the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccination and you've not had previous COVID, it's really, really important that you get that second shot for the durability, if nothing else. The first shot will give you about 80% protection. With two shots, you get 95%. But we don't know how long it will last if you get just one shot. So it's it's really highly encouraged to get the uh, second shot. Well, I just can't help but think about the dis, uh, the communities that are disproportionately affected by COVID, and the and I think that really plays into the vaccine strategy as well. Because if people, let's say, can't get off of work or find childcare, of course mm-hmm. they're not going to make this a priority to to go and get that second dose. So, do you think we're doing enough in making sure communities who are struggling and parents and and people who are just trying to stay afloat to be able to give them that opportunity to get the second dose of vaccine? Ryan, that's a great point. And life is challenging for a lot of people and uh, working out to get even the first shot, much less the second, uh, is a big deal. You know, the the J&J vaccine, as we know, is on a pause right now. One of the big advantages of that vaccination is that it is just one shot. And we'll find out by the end of the week how much that uh, side effect, which is really rare, one in a million, uh, that's as far as medical practice goes, that's that's not a very high risk. In fact, one of the interesting statistics is that out of those 6.8 million people that had six incident cases of these clots, that there were at least 120,000 deaths that were prevented wow. by those 6.8 million getting um getting vaccinated so there the risk benefit is still strongly in favor but we need to know a little bit more before they release the pause yeah so i guess when does the first dose lose effectiveness um we don't know because we've never studied just one dose of pfizer or moderna yeah right so they did it they did some preliminary studies saw that the antibodies were greater after the second shot so they went forward with the with the actual proposal with two shots, but there is no, there are absolutely no data to say how long it will last. Uh, for those people who skip their second dose, 
we'll find out. And I think the big implications are if we keep skipping doses, the infection rate will just continue to go up, right? Yeah, that's the concern. Let's say, for example, that 80% only lasts for four months or so, and these variants are spreading around, then somebody will get sick uh, with that even after they've had just one shot. So um, we don't want to throw away that second shot, to quote Hamilton. Okay, well, thanks as always for joining us. We can for always count us, on you yes, for a Broadway quote. We your love spin, you. exactly. That was uh, <laughs> Dr. Michael Sag. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Coming up on the show, competing on Drag Race has become more expensive than ever over the years. We explain why next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Show me what you got. Yeah. Drag Race stars are starting to be more open about how much they've invested in their shows and in being featured on the show, spending their life savings for the attention and the chance to win. Rachel Miller wrote about this topic in Vice in an article called Inside the Heavy Financial Burden of Going on Drag Race. She's the deputy editor of Vice Life and author of The Art of Showing Up, How to Be There for Yourself and Your People. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Good, now that we played that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I got to say, great piece, by the way, because I have been waiting for a journalist to tackle this topic because I'm a huge fan of Drag Race. I'm a, I'm a like, avid follower of most of the queens, to be quite honest, and we've had them here on the show. But the one thing that stays consistent is the amount of money gradually as each season um, comes out, it gets more expensive. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you like the piece, and like you, I'm a fan, and I just watch with such curiosity, because you can tell, if you go to their Instagrams after the, each episode, you can see they're tagging designers, and you know this stuff isn't cheap, and you can start to do the math and really wonder, okay, how much is this actually costing them? Yeah, and it's gotten much uh, more expensive as the years have gone on. Bob the Drag Queen said in your article. Friend of the show. Uh, yes. He spent 3 k when he was on, but now that would be like probably he would spend 20 to 40 k uh, So does that change the accessibility of even competing on the show? Yeah, I'm sure it does, right? And it's hard because we don't really get to talk to the people who don't compete on the show, although um, somebody retweeted the article and said they have a couple of friends who didn't even go through with the the process of auditioning because they didn't think they could afford it, which is a bummer to hear. But of course, that's going to be a consideration. And obviously, there are people who who don't have a lot to spend and who go for it, but there's surely more who we never get a chance to meet who just are like, I just don't, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I could never do something like that. It's too big of a risk. And the interesting thing is I want to know how much do you think the fandom plays into this? Because I do think, and we, and you wrote about in your article, how Evie was always said that she looked like the cheap looking queen or, you know, looked like she got her stuff out the garbage. And do you think fans kind of encourage that? Like the more expensive you look, the more support, you get? I think it's really interesting because there's two things happening at once. And I think there are, uh, you know, there is a focus on looks and you do see people sort of fawning over the fashion queens and, and loving that and sort of celebrating it. But then I also see a lot of fans on Twitter, on Reddit, wherever talking about how they don't really like the focus on money and on looks and they, they feel like it's unfair. So I can't really tell exactly what the, the overwhelming thought is, but I think it's kind of a mixed bag. But absolutely, the, the pressure to be a look queen and to not get called cheap by both fans and judges is going to come into play. Like people who've been watching the show see those comments and, have, and of course, they internalize them before they go on. Yeah. yeah and like 
Would it help if the show at least provided them with a budget? Do they? Mm. They don't provide them with a budget. Um, one of the people who I talked to, Aquarius, said she didn't really think it was a good idea for the show to provide a budget because she ultimately was kind of like, I don't think it will solve the problem that, you know, people who already have money will just have more and people who, you know, so it won't necessarily even the playing field. And And she kind of said, like, money doesn't buy you a win. It doesn't mean you have taste. So... Her feeling was it wouldn't solve the problem, which I thought was interesting. But obviously, we're hearing from a lot of fans asking why don't they provide a budget. So I kind of landed on I think that's a good question. I'm not sure that I feel strongly that they should, yeah. you know, after talking to Aquaria. But I also think it would be interesting to think about some kind of structure that's a little bit more like a book advance where you essentially get a loan that you have to pay back out of your future royalties. And I wonder oh. if something like that would make sense here. I will say the bright side of this, yes, it is very expensive, but I do think a lot of like kind of unknown designers get a huge spotlight on them. Um, Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that because you talked to some of the designers who actually designed for the queens. Yeah, it was so fun to talk to them. And I'm actually hoping to do a separate piece just talking to designers about what it's like to design for Drag Race because, you know, they don't get a ton of credit on the show. Like their best bet is on Instagram after the fact. And like, that's great. But, you know, talking to somebody who's made wigs for so many winners who, you know, Trixie and Alaska were both wearing his wigs when they were crowned. I mean, that's a huge deal. And not a lot of people know who he is. And he talked a lot about, you know, what it's like when the fans don't like your work and they come for you. It just is a, there's a whole micro economy around this that I think is super interesting. But at the end of the day, they're, they're all creatives and they're super talented and they're putting their work out there and making really beautiful things. And I wish that they got a little bit more credit for it or like that they were more known because I think the work they do is fascinating and like it powers the show, the show that we all love. Yeah, definitely. And you did go into uh, how contestants prepare to go on Drag Race also in your piece. Ooh, that's actually quite interesting. Yeah, we should talk a little bit more about that. We're going to keep you after this. So. Yeah, so Sounds we're going to take a break and we'll be back with more of Drag Race after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are back with Rachel Miller, deputy editor of Vice Life and author of The Art of Showing Up. We're talking about her great piece on Vice.com about the heavy financial burden of going on Drag Race. Uh, So one of the things you uh, did find out is how contestants prepare to go on Drag Race. Was it anything that you didn't know? Were, Were you surprised about anything? The biggest thing that surprised me was just how little time they have to prepare. And I actually think that giving them more time to prepare might go a long way toward evening the playing field or making it less expensive. Because when you don't have a lot of time, you're going to spend money on speed, right? Like you don't have time to shop around for better deals or to make things. You're going to pay for expedited shipping on things. Like there's all these little things that will, you know, really start to add up. So I think just giving them a little bit more time and then maybe designating these are the looks for the runway and these are the looks for, you know, maxi challenges like a seg- you know, a reality TV segment or something like that so that they can kind of figure out what they should invest their time and money and I think would probably help a lot. Did you hear about any stories from the queens about them helping each other out? Like, you know, some queens are very close and if one gets on Drag Race, I, I would imagine, I know Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange, they talked about it on their podcast of the rivalry about a moment where, you know, they Bob actually gave some money to Monet to help her prepare. And so I, I didn't know if that you you heard anything else about the sisterhood in that aspect. I did. Um, so Bendela Krem 
mentioned that she's really close with Jinx. And so she knew a lot of how to prepare because Jinx had kind of given her, you know, just a, a heads up about like kind of what to expect. So that was one thing. And then another thing that didn't make it into the final cut of the article was Heidi talking about how her season 12 sisters did so much for her. You know, I had seen Nikki Doll gave her a wig on the show, but she said a lot of the girls gave her stuff when they got eliminated. They would give her shoes or an outfit. And she said that the challenge that she won, she was wearing Britta's wig. So that like made it even more meaningful that she was, you know, been gift, had been gifted this wig. So I thought that was really just like remarkable and special. And, um, it, you know, it speaks to the, the fact that they saw her talent and they understood that she had a right to be there and they wanted to help her out when they couldn't win anymore. And I thought that was great. I, I do wonder, though, how much RuPaul is going to kind of have to atone for some of this kind of thought process, because I know this yeah. latest season of Drag Race UK, he went off on someone for wearing an H&M dress. And I was right, just I like, mean, what? <laughs> yeah, that was really remarkable. But the thing that surprised me was that both Edie Oddly and then Tom Fitzgerald, who I talked to from Tom and Lorenzo, they were both kind of like, I see where he was coming from. Like, mm. you know, the look wasn't creative. It wasn't inspired. And, you know, you should put glitter on it. And I, and I thought that was really interesting because that wasn't really the answer I was expecting. But Edie said, you know, I think that just putting an a H&M dress on doesn't really show your unique perspective. It's not about the money. It's about, like, who you are. And that dress didn't represent who you are. And I thought that was a pretty interesting take from somebody who is, like, very thoughtful about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's what you do with it, right? It's not right. just, like, about the piece. It's, like, why are you wearing it? Is there intention around it? Um, I guess what is, like, in the end, the takeaway, and you bring up this question, is going on Drag Race still worth it? Mm. You know, I it is according to everyone who I talked to, but I wasn't able, I, I did a lot of outreach and I didn't get to talk to everyone who I would have liked to talk to. So I can't speak to the people who maybe got eliminated early and who don't think it's worth it. I talked to a lot of winners. They think it's worth it, obviously. Um, but I thought it was interesting that the winners were the ones who were spending the most money. So I think that it's like one of the things where you can win if you don't spend a lot of money, but you have to be super, super, super talented and just not everyone is going to be. That's why there's only one winner at the end of the season. These are all exceptionally talented performers, to be clear, but they're trying to pick the best one. So I think to say, like, you can win without having money, probably not unless you're, like, uniquely talented, but then that's why they're a winner, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a, a hard thing to nail down, but I, I hope I can uh, do a follow-up piece talking to maybe some other people who don't have such a rosy outlook. We'll see if they exist and if they want to talk or not. Yeah, you know, I feel like when people watch Drag Race, they think it's all fun and games, but I love pieces like this that really kind of analytically look at it through a critical lens, and, and we have the nuanced conversations about, like, the preparation and even the fandom mm -hmm. and, and the, mm -hmm. you know, the race and and how that plays into a part of it. So I hope more Drag Race content's coming from you because you're great. I hope so, too. I'm glad to hear that you like it. I, I love digging into this stuff. I love logistics, and especially as it applies to reality TV and reality shows I love. So I'm hoping to do more pieces on this, and I hope this is the first of many. Yes, hope to have you back on. Thank you again for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Rachel Miller, deputy editor of Vice Life, author of The Art of Showing Up, How to Be There for Yourself and Your People. Coming up on the show, will we finally stop using the term illegal alien? The announcement from the Biden administration next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up on the show, I'm so excited to have Maybe Girl with us, who's uh, a drag queen and also... Silver Lake Neighborhood Councilwoman running for Congress. All right. That's yes. exciting. Joining us in 30 minutes. Plus, in the T-Report, Kanye West is not happy about how Kim is communicating their divorce, we'll tell you. 
what's going on mm. in a moment. Yes, we will. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. VP Kamala Harris shared this on the American Jobs Plan. We are delivering real, real relief. And the American people are now able to breathe easier and sleep better. And we are not done. The president and I are ready to keep going. And we are not going to take it slow. And we are not going to take it one step at a time. Nope. We are going to take a giant leap into the future. What was she talking about? Okay. Um, she was talking about jobs and specifically the $2 trillion infrastructure package. All it's right. their top priority. Uh, that would include infrastructure, jobs, water, infrastructure. Take a shot every time I say infrastructure. Uh, child and home care businesses, broadband, job training. She called the plan a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation investment in America's infrastructure, in America's future. It is what the American people deserve It's not about fixing what has been. It's about building what can be, you know, all that stuff. In the end, it's all about the numbers and how they're going to implement it. That's for sure. But then you need the money first. But they're definitely going on a campaign to get it. Now, the Biden administration has also ordered U.S. immigration enforcement agencies to stop using terms such as alien, illegal alien, and assimilation when referring to immigrants in the U.S. The change was detailed in a memo sent today. And among the changes, alien will become non-citizen or migrant Illegal will become undocumented, and assimilation will change to integration. And that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so like you mentioned earlier, there is more Kanye and Kim Kardashian drama. And honestly, aren't we all over this? It is time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So sources are saying that Kanye is annoyed at reports that say Kim Kardashian filed first in their split and that she's divorcing him. He is super uh, super annoyed that the story is being constantly presented as her divorcing him. Um, he also, basically, the source noted that this is probably because of the Kardashians' family's huge spin machine. The source goes on to say, actually, it was him saying for a year that they have nothing in common except the kids, and he wanted out. She pulled all the stops trying to uh, save the marriage, um, but um, basically he said that he let her file force uh, first in order to give her dignity. What type of childish BS is this? Why even, I don't even know where the source came from, but why even have this conversation? Who cares who filed first and who didn't file first? And if Kanye's worried about that, honestly, shouldn't you be worried about getting custody of your kids? Like, if you want 50% of custody of your kids, why are you worried about who, who, how it's be, being presented, presented and all these things? It just feels like, I don't know. Because he's really, Kanye West. That's he's going to let her finish, but... You waited all day to say that. It just came up while you were saying that. She waited all day to say that. She wanted to say that. She planned it when she first announced I was talking about this. No, but yeah, I just don't understand that. I, I think it's so, like selfish and gross for him to even still be thinking in that perspective. Like, who cares? Who cares? But I will say, if I was a celebrity, mm-hmm. I'm making sure I make the divorce first. Like, I file for divorce first. I could see that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm going to do it while he's sleeping. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to know. 
Well, he's in Wyoming. Is in the Kanye a Leo? Let me see. Oh. Kanye West a Leo. Listen, I think that the no, best thing to do is not. in the end, the kids are going to see this, all this press and all the uh, this drama. He's a Gemini. Oh, girl, he crazy. <laughs> My mom is a Gemini. How dare you? Girl, none of them Geminis. All right, so I got more T Report coming up next hour, of course. Um, spend some time on our website at WeAreChannelQ.com. We got so many juicy stories from mm-hmm. My T Report, from the news, from the latest. Honestly, it should be like your first thing that you look up every single day. Um, and of course, LGT Show on social media where you can keep the conversation going. I got more coming up next hour. Okay, next up on the show, why restaurants are having a hard time restaffing now that they can reopen. That's coming up next. Despite the hospitality industry losing nearly one-third of its jobs during the pandemic, workers aren't coming back. Joining us right now is Alexandra Jones, journalist in Philadelphia, who writes about food, farming, and restaurants. Appreciate you for being here. Hi, Jira and Ryan. Nice to be there. Yes. So why aren't folks taking these jobs? I mean, unemployment has been at an all-time high. You would think that people would want to jump right back in. Well, uh, the pandemic has created a ton of upheaval for people in the industry, just like it has for everyone else. Like people have moved away. People have different child care needs right now. Um, some of them have changed jobs during these long layoffs or gone back to school. Um, so there's that factor. But the other factor is that these jobs, a lot of them are very difficult, crazy long hours, really low pay and, you know, not really well compensated, not a lot of benefits. And folks are just kind of waiting and seeing uh, how they want to re-enter the industry if they want to re-enter the industry. Yeah, and I thought what was really interesting um, is I think a lot of people realized how they were being treated because a lot of people in the pandemic, especially if you are a food service worker, had to still go in and you were like risking your life and it was either you either come in or you don't have a job. And so how much do you think that played into a lot of the decision making of people being like, well, if I'm going to be mistreated, why would I go back? Absolutely. So chefs, especially, but a lot of hospitality workers and restaurants have this like make it happen no matter what, just get it done kind of attitude. And I think the pandemic gave a lot of those people the chance to get away from that and, you know, decompress, get some time at home, get some time away from that environment for the first time maybe in years. Uh, And so there's that factor of of just that lifestyle being really tough. Then there's also the factor of a lot of restaurant workers have not yet been vaccinated in many states Mm. or or getting access to vaccines for those folks is hard. Um, So they're also putting themselves at a really uh, much higher risk for getting covid in addition to a lot of what we've seen with customers, you know, not being the greatest about things like mask mandates, tipping, even on takeout. Um, it's just it's not a great place to go back. And if they are getting that extended unemployment benefit that's keeping folks afloat or if there's another way that they can make it work, you know, maybe they're going to do that. I also feel like there was a lot of people moving around. So, like, if you are an owner and you're used to certain staff, obviously the staffs aren't going to be available anymore if they left those cities or perhaps just jump ship to another job, right? Because they couldn't wait around. Yeah, something else that we're seeing uh, a few of the owners that I talked to is not only that hardly any applications are coming in, hardly any of those are leading to interviews, training, actually bringing people on, um, but the, the talent pools that they are seeing tend to have a lot less experience. You know, probably for a lot of those reasons I just mentioned, um, if the experienced folks are not necessarily wanting to come back, maybe it's people 
who do really need a job, who are really ready to work or want to enter the industry, this would be a good time to begin working in hospitality if that's a goal that you have. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just not as experienced, and so that's going to require more training. Do you think the hospitality industry or the restaurant industry will bounce back in the way that it was before the pandemic? Because we saw so many amazing restaurants and so much kind of just fall to pieces. It really does kind of suck. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, conf, a conflict um, because, you know, we all love a lot of great restaurants. We love that experience. We have our favorites. Um, but... You know, we want that industry to be better. Um, right. Even before COVID, there were a lot of reckonings going on um, with discrimination, harassment, uh, racism, sexism, homophobia in the industry and in kitchens that folks had to deal with. Um, and they don't want that anymore. So yeah. we're hoping, like, ideally, this would uh, be sort of a wake up call to the industry and folks will start paying more to their workers, treating their workers better. That may result in a slightly higher uh, check when you do get to go out next time. But you're paying for something that ha- you haven't been paying for this whole time. Like that's um, those low those low pay rates, you know, keeping ingredient costs down. Um, you know, there's never a free lunch. And that cost was borne by workers yeah. in the past. So hopefully um, it'll get better. That was Alexander Jones, journalist in Philly, covering food farming and restaurants. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, coming up next, we're so excited to have maybe a girl joining us. She's a drag queen and U.S. House candidate. She joins us next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. So excited to have our next guest on. Maybe a girl is a trans non-binary drag queen, Silver Lake Neighborhood Councilwoman, and recently announced her second run for Congress to represent California 28, CA 28 in the U.S. House of Representatives. Maybe welcome to Let's Go There. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yes, love what you're up to, and congratulations on all this. You're going up against, uh, again, incumbent Adam Schiff. Why run again? Why are you doing this to yourself? (laughs) Great question. Very great question. Um, First of all, somebody's got to do it, right? Um, You know, I'm running, a big part of the reason I'm running is because um, I'm a progressive. There are so many progressives in California, in Los Angeles, and I'm running against Adam Schiff because he is a corporate conservative Democrat. And I don't think that's reflective of of what people are really like in Los Angeles. I'm also running because there has never been a trans person in Congress. And how can we expect to be represented when there are no people like me being a part of the conversation? Furthermore, I'm running again because we came so close uh, in our last election. We ended up losing the primary election by less than 1% or only 1,114 votes. It was so close. So what are you doing different this time? Because, yeah, that is such a close margin. And it feels like, yeah, that was in the middle of a pandemic. But now we're kind of getting out of this thing. So what do you have planned? You know, this time around, we're doing things a little bit differently. We wanted to start a lot earlier. So we announced our campaign uh, about 14, 15 months ahead of the election, uh, trying to get as many people involved as possible. We already have three times the number of volunteers that we did uh, in our last election uh, and just trying to get the word out, you know. Yeah. And what types of reactions are you seeing? I mean, it's so needed, including... And all these horrific anti-trans laws uh, trying to be passed across the country. Representation is more important than ever before. 
It's so important. And it's funny you, you bring that up. I, I literally tweeted about this earlier, how there are, you know, at present, there's 115 anti-transgender bills moving through various state legislatures. And my question is, how many trans people are actually involved in these conversations? I think it's horrific that uh, so many cisgender bigots are trying to write us out of existence and aren't even and we're not even a part of the conversation, you know? Yeah, it's it's just it's frustrating. And it's also I, I could imagine it could be really um, either really tiresome of just trying to continue to fight for someone to realize your humanity and your existence. Exactly. It's so tiring. It's so exhausting. But you know what? It's it's so necessary. Um, you know, there are people that want people like me dead that don't even, you know, care if we're alive or not. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, you know, I think awareness is a big part of it. You know, I think just realizing that trans people are just everyday people. You know, we're just like you and your neighbor. Um, well, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, we um, have these discussions, obviously, every single day, unfortunately, here on uh, Channel Q. How are you mixing in your work um, in the drag world and your performance work into your political career? Do you continue performing or are you just focusing on politics right now? You know, kind of both. Um, right now, I actually have not performed since March 2020 due to the pandemic. So I haven't performed in about 14 months. I actually have my very first live performance scheduled at the end of the month uh, now that I'm uh, fully vaccinated. Uh, in our last campaign, we actually, you know, it was it was kind of great that I had such a packed drag schedule. You know, before the pandemic, I was doing anywhere from three to 10 shows a week. And it was great because oftentimes I'd be able to be on the microphone and get to introduce myself to, you know, a brand new audience who might not know that there is a trans person running for Congress. So essentially it was great because it was kind of like we got to have these little mini rallies anytime we had a show. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, our, our show is, you know, literally everywhere across the country, but it's it, you're in our backyard, right? Silver Lake is literally my backyard. And so much yes. was going on in Echo Park with the homeless community out here. Oh, my goodness. I would love to know your thoughts. And, and to be honest, what exactly does your position do like for Silver Lake? I would I feel like there's so many people. Totally. Who so so the um, being on the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council, there are the neighborhood council system is uh, the most grassroots, uh, most local level of government in Los Angeles. So there's one mayor, there's 15 city council districts, and then there's 99 neighborhood council districts. And the neighborhood councils act as advisory boards to city council. So anytime city council has any sort of legislation on the table, we can vote as a board to submit what's known as a community impact statement to either be in favor of or in opposition against legislation that's moving through city hall. Now, when it comes to Echo Park, Echo Park is our neighbor. We're in the same city council district. It's literally, I could walk to Echo Park Lake from where I live. And it's so horrific what happened um, just a few weeks ago. There was a homelessness encampment at Echo Park Lake that had been, that had been there for quite some time. There were hundreds of people who were, who were living there. And, you know, they really formed a community. And I, uh, the way that the eviction of all of these people is being portrayed by city council member Mitch O'Farrell, they're trying to, to spin it as a positive thing. Oh, well, we got these people into housing. But the thing is, 
bridge housing, temporary housing is not housing. Uh, and the thing is that the housing that they put so many of these people in, it's so restrictive. You know, you can't leave during certain hours. You can't have visitors. You can't have pets. You can only bring two bags of belongings. It's very dehumanizing. Uh, furthermore, the Project Room Key, which is the name of that program, it's expiring in September. So what happens in a few months when all of these people who were forced out of their community and into temporary housing, what happens to them then? The cycle of homelessness perpetuates without permanent supportive housing and permanent services, which, you know, there just frankly is not enough of that. And the thing is, we have the money for it. We have the money for permanent housing. We have the money for services, uh, but the city's not acting upon it. And, you know, Mitch O'Farrell, who is the council member, he did this eviction. It was very surreptitious. Um, nobody knew about it until it was happening. Uh, as a council member, as a neighborhood council member, I emailed them and I said, hey, I heard this rumor that Echo Park Lake is going to be closing and that there's going to be a sweep of the encampments. Got no response. Finally, we find out that it's happening. And when they did this eviction, they sent hundreds of police officers, arrest buses, police choppers, and they ended up arresting 182 people. They arrested activists. They arrested journalists. They arrested the president of the the Echo Park Neighborhood Council. Oh, I think we just lost her. Um, All right, that was maybe a girl. Check her out. All the amazing work she's doing as part of Silver Lake Neighborhood. Uh, as a councilwoman and also in her second run for Congress at Maybe a Girl on Instagram. Coming up on the show, the new study that reveals how much TV Gen Z actually watches. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Welcome back. Well, we've got the data. The numbers are in in terms of what Gen Z wants to watch. Why do we care about Gen Z again? Because they are they are part of knowing the trends, Ryan. I was a, I was the future at one point too. Yeah. So they'll have their just, time. They won't be the future after. Now, what comes after Gen Z? Does it go like double A, like Gen Double A? I can't even Gen keep Double up. B. What's the next name for them? Gen Zero Zero One. We're going to numbers now, oh, or something like that. What no. in the science project? Yeah, no. Uh, but listen, uh, according to uh, Variety. No surprise here. There's a decline in TV viewing among younger demos, and it's been documented. Um, But it's concerning them because this new data and Hollywood, it could signal this huge shift and permanent shift in consumers' entertainment habits. And so Deloitte and U.S. technology, media, and telecom leader did this whole study. They said the younger generation is looking at, dun-dun-dun, Video games, music, and other forms of entertainment. Like, we're that surprised. I mean, we knew this, but I guess they finally have the data that's in around this. And so this is going to change how traditional companies have to approach this generation and how they keep those numbers. I mean, will TV, this is the question, go extinct? Like, will TV just not be around anymore because they're not getting the eyeballs of the younger generation? No, I think there's plenty of people who will continue to watch television, continue to... Now, award shows is a different thing. I don't think anyone is watching award shows because I think award shows we've seen every time it happens. The Oscars are coming up, I think, believe this weekend. Um, 
the ratings are awful. And so I do think there's going to be a shift in award shows. Um, but when it comes to television, scripted, unscripted, I think it's here to stay. Um, to be quite honest, I'm not really sure why, you know, TV or anyone is really trying to appeal to kind of Gen Zers at the end of the day. Because it's not like they're buying these like subscription packages their parents are. Yeah, and in the end, I just wonder if, yeah, streaming services are included in TV or not. I mean, all of it's media, and so it's just like, where do you want to put the media? Yeah, but for the most part, I'm 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 glued to the TV. I love it. I really do enjoy it. Now, I, I understand that video games are really big for Gen Zers, but I don't think that's going to shift it enough for us to completely shift and change the entire world for them. What else they want? What else do what? They're Gen- already young. They have their youth. Yeah. What else they want? <laughs> I just can't. I mean, video games. I've never been into video games. Oh, I have. I'm a bit. I like video games. But you are old. It's showing your age line since you watch your TV on a TV screen versus just on your phone. I'm just not, saying. Oh, Quibi didn't work out for a reason. And they were probably uh, uh, trying to appeal to Gen Z. That's because it was a bunch of old people creating what they thought Gen Z wanted. It wasn't good. We just need to give a lot of money to like a TikTok influencer to create TV. No, Obviously. Why do we need to do that? <laughs> that was a joke. No. Okay, let us know what you think. Uh, do you think TV is just going to go away? At LGT Shows, where you can find us on social media. Coming up on the show, a trans billionaire's pointed message to the Tennessee GOP. That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up in 30 minutes, why you shouldn't skip your second dose of the coronavirus vaccine. Our favorite infectious diseases expert is here to help us all out. First, let's get into some what's trending this hour because this is good. The world's first transgender billionaire is sending a very pointed message to Tennessee legislators and the music industry is joining in. Republican state legislators have launched, as we know, tons of vicious attacks on the LGBTQ community this year, specifically the trans community. Spring a lot of backlash from major corporations and celebrities. 25 anti-LGBTQ laws have been proposed in Tennessee alone so far this legislative session. So Jennifer Pritzker, whose family started the Hyatt Hotels group, she threatened to yank her family's trust out of the state. She said, as a transgender woman, these unnecessary and hurtful laws are personal to me. As a businesswoman, my larger concern is the impact they will have on Tennessee's reputation and ultimately economic well-being as businesses and tourists turn elsewhere. No state benefits from the perception that it is an intolerant and unwelcome place for people of different backgrounds. And it alarms me to see the state vying for the title of least inclusive in the nation. You know what her personal net worth is? Approximately $2 billion. So that's an early yes, queen. Wow. And that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, right? Okay, so let's... This is the last time, I swear. I swear it's the last time that I'm talking about Sharon Osbourne, okay? Famous last words, okay. No, seriously, it's the last time. I, I will... Producer Vanessa, we will skip every Sharon Osbourne story there is for till the end of time. Unless, you know, something, you know, knock on wood, tragic happens, but... Um, because we'll have to we'll have to talk about it then, duh. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So I did I go dark or yes, something? My bad. Anyway, um, Sharon Osbourne, he, uh, she did her first exclusive sit down interview with Bill Maher, and uh, that was on HBO. If you watch Bill Maher, then you probably saw it. But she basically went on there to 
basically get her behind kiss. I felt like there was really nothing that I got from that interview. I couldn't even finish watching it. Because imagine Bill Maher with his really, really intense, kind of problematic background, and then Sharon Osbourne, both of those two coming together to talk about how hard life is now that cancel culture is a thing. And so I want to play a little bit of a clip of the interview um, so you can kind of get the sentiment of whatever he's talking about. Here you go. Week before, I don't know, I remember I watched it, uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry gave their interview with Oprah. Okay, yes. then your friend P P Pierce Morgan, he's mm -hmm. a commentator in Britain, yes. he said he didn't believe things that Meghan Markle said. Right. And then on your show, you said, well, he's a good friend of mine, and I don't necessarily agree with his opinion, but he is entitled to his opinion. Exactly. So he was called a racist and lost his job, and you were called a racist and lost your job. Do I have it right? You got it right. That's exactly how it went. Right. Who's the racist and why? I, this is what I'm trying to figure out. Have you? Me, me too. Okay. Me too. So they go further in to talk about how having a difference of opinions and disagreeing with someone does not make you a racist. And that's not even what the whole entire conversation is. But to be honest, I'm waiting for someone to fully get Bill Maher off of the air. It's it's honestly toxic at this point. Um, and he was talking so much that she didn't even say anything. <laughs> it wasn't an interview there. It was just that's shit. what I'm saying. She really just wanted to go on a program with her friend so he could kind of basically be like, I have your back and let's talk about how much cancel culture sucks. And so if you want to watch that and put yourself through that, head over to wearechannelq.com because you can check out more information there. And at LGT show everywhere um, on social media to keep the conversation going. Love I'm done it. spilling. Okay. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Kellogg's has a new cereal just in time for Pride Month. It's called Together with Pride, and it's coming to stores May, and we'll have rainbow-colored cereal hearts in the colors of the rainbow flag, and also it's going to be covered in edible glitter. The mascots of various Kellogg cereal brands appear also on the box, like Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam, because they're together with pride. And they're going to be available in some grocery stores and cost uh, $3.99. And they are saying that for every box purchase, Kellogg's is donating $3 to the LGBTQ organization GLAD if customers upload their receipt to their website, which I think this is great, although I wish they could have just made that easier. But good on them for donating to an organization that we love and doing something creative. And I love edible glitter. No, I do, too. This is actually so much fun, even though here's the thing about glitter. It gets everywhere, even if it's edible and it gets places where it shouldn't go. I don't know what you're doing with your cereal, but I hear you on that. It's true. It's really true. It makes everything better. Does so, it? So, what? Does it? Mm, yes. I mean, glitter, it makes it festive, but does it make it everything better? I feel like glitter is the most annoying thing to clean. That's true. You always it, see the other side. It's true. It's right? true. Thank you for that. Uh, so that is our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. And of course, we're going to continue to talk about many announcements here as we move into Pride Month because I'm sure a lot of companies will be doing a lot of things. And if you want to feature anything on our show, hit us up. Slide into our DMs at LGT Show so we can hear from you and include you as part of our show. And that does it for everything today. Our Monday show. Yes, yes. Came back with a bang. Exactly. But we're back tomorrow weekdays here on Channel Q Live, 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 
5 to 9 p.m. Eastern on tomorrow's show. We're going to have a pediatrician on who takes care of transgender kids to just talk about everything you need to know around social support, puberty blockers, and other medical options that improve the lives of transgender youth. And I can't believe it's already here. 420! And we're going to be talking about the benefits of cooking with cannabis. That's on tomorrow's show. If you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Just subscribe. Join our podcast family. Go to the Odyssey app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We're sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. And stick around for Loveline with Dr. Chris where he's covering how to take a mental health break. Ooh. So needed. That's next.